chapter 15. And if you need a Bible, just uh, raise a hand and the ushers will drop one off to you. Revelation chapter 15. Only eight verses, we'll read them together. It says, And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues. For in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire. And them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, Stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works. Lord God Almighty, just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. And after that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure and white linen, and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God who liveth forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. Now, as you know by now, The events described in chapters 6 through 19 of the book of Revelation show us very vividly what will take place during the last seven years of human history. It's a period of time known biblically as the tribulation or the great tribulation, the time when God judges the Christ-rejecting world. Now, chapters 12 through 15 that we've been going over in the last couple of weeks, are all events that are associated with the midway point of the tribulation and kind of a precursor to the last seven plagues, the seven vials that we will see in our study next time in chapter 16, and a precursor also to the battle of Armageddon, which will end all things at the end of the tribulation. Now, chapter 15, where we pick up tonight, is the final precursor to these seven vials or seven bowl judgments, the calamity that will befall the world during the last half of the tribulation. Now, the first half of the tribulation was made up by, first of all, those seven seals, that each time one of the seals was broken, there was calamity that took place. And then the seven seals were followed by seven trumpets, seven angels, each sounding their trumpet, and again, a corresponding judgment. And then as we just read here in chapter 15, the last seven plagues that will come upon planet Earth that fill up the wrath of God are these seven vials, or these seven bull judgments that will be poured out during that time. Now, verse 1, it says, I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, 
seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up or completed the wrath of God. Now, in chapter 14, our study last week, verses 9 through 11, if you could just turn back there with your eyes, we saw that there were three angels in that chapter that flew through the heavens, and each one of them had a message for all the people that lived upon the planet still at that time. The first angel, it tells us, flew through the heavens and and gave to every inhabitant of the world the everlasting gospel, the good news that there is salvation through Jesus Christ, that God has provided a way for men to be saved. Then the second angel, complementing the message of the first, said to the people on earth, that Babylon is fallen, symbolic of the world and its systems and its religion and its values, that it isn't going to last, that there is nothing upon this planet that's abiding in any way or fashion. And then the third angel that flew through the heavens, in light of the first and the second, gives to those that remain a warning, a very vivid and loud and clear warning. He says that the third angel followed saying with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, that the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture. It's not diluted into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. So the gospel, followed by the destiny of the system, followed by the destiny of those that continue in it should they refuse the everlasting gospel of God. And it uses the words there, it talks about the cup of the wrath, or the cup of his indignation. And being the cynical, curious type that I am, I kind of get a picture in my mind of this cup and I say, what does it look like inside that cup? Well, we're told as we come to chapter 15, verse 1, that these seven vials, these seven last judgments that will come, they are the contents of that cup. They fill up, they complete, if you would, the wrath of God. Now, some people, and understandably so, have a problem with the concept of a God of wrath. They just cannot, or in some cases, they just refuse to concede that wrath can be an attribute of a God of love. Suppose with me that you, out of the goodness of your heart, wanted to bestow a blessing of unequivocal proportions upon a group of your friends. And so, because you have unlimited resources and you have exquisite taste and a a real knack for quality, and because you're bountiful in your generosity, you decide not to rent a place, but to build one. You're going to design and construct a facility to house the, you know, full amount of those that you would have attend your banquet, your blessing. And so you design a magnificent structure. The signature of opulence, you know, the finest accommodations. You design, you know, climate control, air purification systems so that nothing is left out. 
You supply the cleanest of water sources and, you know, constantly renewable food provisions and servants to, you know, bring them and renew them because this will be like nothing that's ever been done before. Every resource that's imaginable uh, and every, you know, thing to accommodate and facilitate, nothing left uncovered in this plan that you have to bestow this blessing upon your friends. But as your guests come and begin to enjoy the bounty that you're seeking to bestow upon them, some of them begin to speculate and question the sincerity of your motives in putting on this this great blessing that that you're just seeking to give to them. And so they begin to murmur. And and quietly they begin to mock you and scoff. And, And some begin to grow envious and even somewhat corrupt some of the things that you've put in place. They kind of tamper with the air supply. They pollute the food source. And so some of the guests then begin to grow ill and, you know, get sick. And that results in lawsuits. And they begin to claim injury at your hand because, you know, now it's your fault. You did this because, you know, it's at your banquet. They begin to blame you and slander you. Others begin to take credibility for some of the things that you did and deny that it was even your doing at all in the first place. They begin to violate the rules of the house, destroy your facility and your property, abuse and even murder some of the servants that you have hired to accommodate and to be a blessing to them. And they bring hatred and contempt for your name without regard to your person or to your good intentions. Now, if that were your story, among the many emotions that you would feel, I believe one of them would be a little bit of wrath. If that's the way you were treated by those people that you intended to bless. Well, the Bible talks about a God of unlimited resource, who's exquisite in his taste, bountiful in his generosity. And the Bible testifies that God created a place for the sole intent and purpose of bestowing a blessing upon his creation to whom he would demonstrate his love. A place of renewable resources, oxygen levels perfectly pure that would always have the proper ratio of oxygen to nitrogen and other things so that it would perfectly balance and support the system of those people that he created. A water purification system, a cycle that would continually renew, continually supply, and meet the needs of those people that he would invite, that he would place upon his planet. Unlimited amounts of solar energy. I kind of had to figure out how many kilowatt hours each person uses per day. I mean, or else the illustration would be incomplete. But did you know that you... In fact, every single person that lives uses the equivalent amount of kilowatt hours of energy of sunlight in one day that a household consumes in one month. That means if God were to send you an electric bill, it would be one month's worth at the current rate of supply times every day of your life. But yet that energy is supplied, it's bountifully given to all that would employ or come upon his planet. 
He gave bodies with systems that self-heal, involuntary circulation and respiratories, senses that are acute and able to experience pleasure, and a free will and an abundance of mind power. But what did man whom God created and placed upon this planet that so perfectly suits the needs that he has, what does man do to God in return? He mocks and questions the motivation behind God's method and what he did. Speculating of even his very existence, man begins to deny and scoff at God's presence. He begins to corrupt the systems that God has placed that results in the sickness and death of some of the people that are there. And then in turn, blaming God, the God who they scoff at his very existence, they begin to blame him for the calamities that are taking place because of their own irresponsibilities. They violate the laws of his creation. They claim the very right of deity and self-creation, kill the very servants of God, and even the Son of God who came to pay the price and be the provisional forgiveness for the hatred and contempt that man is showing to God. And then, on top of that, man expects that this God of love and grace, if he does so exist, will just brush all of that under the rug and pretend it never happened and just say, well, they're just kind of going along with the crowd. You know, it's not really their fault. Well, listen, an intelligent God of that much bounty and that much grace and that much truth will not ignore man's denial of the evidence that's before him of his design and creation. Nor will he ignore man's rejection of the witness of his will and his ways by the servants that he sent. Nor will he ignore their rejection of his son who was given to save the world. Nor will he ignore their rejection of of the warnings clearly given to heed of the destiny, what will befall those that scoff and reject and deny his presence and his provision. The Bible says that God is not mocked, nor is he weak. He is both a God of bounty and a God of love, but he is also a God of wrath upon those that ignorantly deny and scoff at his existence, his presence, and his provision. Romans chapter 11, verse 22 says, Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. That he is both bountifully good, but he also has the capacity to be severe. And he is to be feared. He is a God of wrath, and his wrath will be demonstrated upon those that reject his son, that reject the truth, the everlasting gospel, and that pledge their allegiance rather to the beast, the antichrist that we saw. Now God is abundantly patient. The Bible says that he doesn't desire that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In fact, Peter tells us that the reason why he hasn't returned, the reason why perhaps Harold Camping will tell us he was wrong, no, he won't tell you this because he doesn't tell you anything biblical, you know. But because of the patience, he's long-suffering. He doesn't want to see anyone go that way. And so he waits. The Bible says that the Lord of the earth waits for the precious harvest of the earth, the early and the latter rains. But be convinced 
that there is a day coming when his wrath will be poured out without mixture. And here we see in chapter 15, verse 1, John sees seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled the wrath of God. And then he says, I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire. And them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand upon the sea of glass, having the harps of God. Now, many times in the Bible, when you see a sea, it is symbolic of a multitude. And John tells us right here that he sees a multitude and they're standing on the sea. But it's significant because it was a sea of glass, but that it was also mingled with fire. And this is the only time that you see a sea of glass mingled with fire and a multitude standing upon it. And I believe it's significant because the picture of this multitude, who they are, are those that were saved out of the great tribulation period. We know that because he tells us very clearly that these are those that got victory over the beast, over his image, over his mark, and over the number of his name. That clearly indicates to us who these people are. These are those that were saved during the Great Tribulation. I believe it's significant that they're standing upon a sea of glass that's mingled with fire because in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul talks about those who build their lives upon the foundation of wood, hay, and stubble. Those that live for pleasure, that follow after the flesh, that deny and reject God to a certain point, but that maybe just have fire insurance, a perfect picture of those in the tribulation. And it says that they will be saved yet so as by fire. They won't receive a reward. Their lives, the works that they produced during the time that they were on earth is burned up. They make it by the skin of their teeth because they wake up and put their faith in Christ. But they make it without reward. A perfect picture of those during the tribulation. But what does it tell us and why are they there? Because it tells us that they gained victory over the beast, over his image, over his mark, and over the number of his name. Now the victory that it speaks of here is not a physical victory. They won't overcome him physically in a way where they defeat him, you know, in some type of a battle type scenario. But when it talks about the victory that they defeat, it's an, it's a, it's an overcoming that happens spiritually. Let me explain. When the Antichrist, who is the beast... You know, as we've seen at this point, when Antichrist comes upon the scene, the Bible says that he will come with a strong delusion. He will have power to deceive. He will seem like the practical solution to every problem. The promise to be the fulfillment of every need. He'll appeal to the desires of human nature. His existence will be practical, invisible. It will be tangible. His benefits will be physically attainable. His kingdom will be here and now to receive, and there will be no need for faith, hope, or in any way, patience. All things will be visible and instantly reachable and practical and seemingly righteous. It'll be an instant gratification of every desire and every need. Now, we know that the truth behind his kingdom and everything that he presents is that it is a big lie. It's a facade. It's a deception. That it's the culmination of 6,000 years of satanic observation and his cunning design to lure and destroy man. 
Now, did you know that Satan hates man? It's true. Jesus said that he's a liar and a murderer from the beginning. Isaiah tells us that his desire was to be like God. That what caused Satan to go from a beautiful angel over the worship of heaven to the devil that deceives and lies and kills was a desire to be deity. That's what he wanted. And when Satan, who could never elevate from the position that he was created in, saw God make a being that was in his image, it filled Satan with jealousy. Billy Graham, someone shared this with me recently, that Billy Graham in his book on angels said that the fall of Satan happened 20 seconds after the creation of man. Now, I don't know that that's true. I mean, he's speculating somewhat, but it makes sense, certainly. Because here, Satan, desiring something that he could never attain, sees a being that God creates in his image. Now, I'm not saying that man can become God, but we are made in the image of God. And Satan, filled with jealousy, went on a conquest to destroy that creation of God. And so the Antichrist will be a culmination of 6,000 years of Satan watching, studying, observing, seeing what drives man. And Antichrist will be the solution and the gratification of everything that man thinks that he needs. That's why it will be such a strong deception, such a strong delusion. Now, the only defense that anybody who's living during the tribulation time will have against this onslaught of lies is to believe in the testimony of Scripture, which will require, as we have seen, a rejection of Antichrist's person, a rejection of his kingdom and of his solutions, a rejection of his system that will ultimately result in death. That's what victory will require. So victory that it speaks of here in verse 2 in, these, in this context means that what these people that are standing upon the sea of glass essentially did is that they traded what they could see and understand, what did appeal to their human nature and senses, what was instant and seemingly safe, and that required no faith nor patience and promised survival and prosperity. They traded all of that for something that they couldn't see or understand, which is the very testimonies of Scripture that even to us, though we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us, the Bible says we still see through a foggy glass. Something that does not appeal to the human nature in the senses. In fact, the very nature of godliness and the nature of the Spirit is the, the stark opposite of what our flesh desires and longs for. Something that is not instant nor safe, that does require faith and patience and ensures poverty followed by execution. So these people that are standing upon the sea of glass that's mingled with fire, they obtained a great victory. Because they traded everything that seemed at that time that was right. By faith, they believed the testimony of Scripture, and they rather trusted in the God of heaven and rejected his allegiance and his kingdom and were executed for it. And thus, it says that they obtained a victory. It will not be easy, and those that choose rightly will have fought and obtained victory. Now, it's interesting to me that though this clearly speaks of those that will be saved during the tribulation, 
The same exact battle and victory is ascribed to us that live prior to the tribulation. The life of faith that we live as Christians, basing our lives upon scripture and trusting and hoping in God for salvation, means that we base our lives on that which is physically hard to understand. We base our lives on things that are contrary to our human nature and senses. And we are scoffed at and mocked for it. It requires us to live by faith and to execute patience. A lot of patience. And I don't know about you, but I'm not good at patience. You know. It calls us to be pilgrims and strangers upon this earth. And it requires that we fight. The Christian life is a battle. I don't know if you know that, but we're swimming upstream. Yes, God promises he'll be with us. Yes, he promises to provide for us. Yes, he promises that all things are working together for good. But I don't know about you. I find that the Christian life is not easy. It's a battle. That's why Paul warning Timothy against the pursuit of riches and the involvement in worldly pursuits said in 1 Timothy 6.12, he said, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou also art called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. The Bible makes it very clear that you and I, that we're in a war. Ephesians 6.12, Paul wrote to the church, and he said, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. He says right there, we wrestle. And it's not against flesh and blood. It's not a physical battle that we fight. But it's against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. Did you know that the darkness of this world is ruled by hell? Against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now the nature of the war that we're in is invisible. Now how do you fight an invisible war? How do you fight against an enemy that you can't see? The purpose of the war isn't to destroy us physically necessarily at first but rather it's to get us to trust in something other than god to live for and love this world and not the next and to indulge ourselves and to live for instant gratification it's interesting isn't it that when you read the seven letters to the seven churches that we read back in chapter two and chapter three each of those churches had something that an obstacle that they were facing whether it was persecution or whether it was worldly involvement or whether it was the influence of other religions seeking to corrupt their Christianity or whether it was just distraction or or, or just physical pain. Each church had something that they had to battle, something that they had to fight against. And to each church, Jesus said the same thing. He said, to him that overcometh. That means that there was a battle. There was an obstacle, something that had to be surmounted. And on the other side, there was victory to be attained. To him that overcometh, will I give? And then he would give some eternal motivation that would encourage them to continue on in the battle. So it applies not only to those during the tribulation, and not only to the churches as a whole, but did you know it applies to each one of us individually as well? That you need to each one of us, there is a particular hook or a particular lure or a particular problem or affliction that each of us are faced with. A battle that we will fight in this conquest that we're in, this Christian walk as we make our way towards heaven. 
For some, it may be a particular sin, something that continually plagues you, that calls out to you, that almost has a voice that you can hear, that has a, a, almost a pull in something that keeps drawing you back and you find yourself constantly fighting against it, learning to hate it, having contempt in your heart for this habit that was formed in the days perhaps before you came to Christ. For some, the battle is the love of the world. Being drawn by its systems, by its ways, by its entertainments, by its allurements. For some, it's a love of money. A pursuit of riches and seeking to build treasure houses here on the earth or to compete with others and to look down from the tower of wealth. For some, it may be an adverse family situation. A marriage that seems to always be a grind. There's always friction in the home and it's a battle. It's, it, it seeks to draw you away. It seeks to snuff out your light and to ruin your witness and your faith in Christ and the joy that you have. For some, it may be pride, a deep self-love and an inability to let go of it. For others, it may be a constant worrying an anxiety that plagues you, and it just seems that you cannot gain victory over it. There's a fight. Others, a lack of faith. For some, it may be religious tendencies that it's hard to let go of. It's hard for you to trust in Christ by faith. It's hard for you to not lean upon your own goodness or your own works, and it seems that there's a battle. There's something to fight, and each of us has something that we face. There's something that each of us must battle. But the point is that just because we're saved doesn't mean that we don't struggle or fight. We do fight. Now, the difference between us and those in the tribulation is that they will be fighting for victory over the beast and over his system. You and I, and this is the good news about our fight. We don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. And that's good news. John 16, Jesus said this. He said, in the world, you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Now, why would Jesus tell us to be of good cheer because he overcame unless we are found in him and thus we are also overcomers? In Romans chapter 8, verse 37, Paul encouraging the church, he said, Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. He was talking about the battle that we fight between the flesh and the spirit. We're more than conquerors. How? Not by our strength and our might and our, our wit in battle, but through him that loved us. To the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 57, Paul said, But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a fight, and the Christian life is a battle. We all know that if you're walking with the Lord. If you don't have a battle, I question the depth of your devotion or your sincerity in following Christ. Because this is a battle. But the good news is that he assures us that we will have victory if we lean upon him, if we fight in his name. But these, during the tribulation, their victory is over the beast, over his image, over his mark, and over his number. And I find it interesting that at the end of that verse there, it says that he saw them stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. 
And I love that picture of them standing. They're not broken in defeat. They're not crushed under the weight of Antichrist's assassination. But rather they're standing there holding the harps of God. And we'll see that they have a testimony in their mouth. That verse came to mind, Romans 14, 4, where Paul's talking about those that judge others. And he says that, who are you that judges another man's servant? To his own master, he stands or falls, and he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. And these here, though perhaps they denied during their earthly life prior to the rapture, and though they find themselves going through the tribulation, yet at that time they wake up, they deny Antichrist and his kingdom, and here they are in heaven standing with the harps of God in their hand. Amazing. The grace, the goodness of God. And it says that they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. He tells us that they're singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Now, Moses, when when God sent him, after his 40 years of Bible college, he had a BSD, a backside of the desert degree, you know. And after 40 years on the backside of the desert following the sheep, God spoke to Moses and he said, Moses, now I will send you. I've heard the affliction of my people. I have seen their affliction that Pharaoh does unto them. And now I will send you to go and deliver them. And Moses went back and Moses had a battle to fight. He had opposition from the people who didn't believe that God had sent him. He faced opposition from the Pharaoh who consistently said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And who are you that I should listen to you? Get out of here. And and he had a fight, a, a battle with Pharaoh. He had opposition from practical sense. You recall that after finally Pharaoh said, get out. And the people left Egypt and they moved towards the south. And they were going the wrong way. But you remember from the story that it was God who was leading them. The pillar of fire by day and, or by night and the cloud by day. And God was leading them in a most unpractical way. There was a mountain range on their right hand. There was a mountain range on their left hand. And they were headed directly for the Red Sea. And the people began to chide with Moses and say, Who, is, who are you that you've done this? You've led us out of here to be slaughtered. And sure enough, word came that Pharaoh and his armies were pursuing from behind. And Moses found himself in a predicament, backed up against the Red Sea, unable to flee to the right hand or to the left, and quickly being closed in upon by the Egyptian army. And as he lifted up his hands to pray, God said, don't pray, move. (laughs) And he put his staff down in the sea, and he saw the salvation of God. The waters began to part and they passed through on dry ground, three million in number. And then they stood on the other side and watched as the waters engulfed the armies of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And as they stood on that shore, that shore of victory, seeing the salvation of God, the miraculous moving of his hand, Moses sang a song and it's recorded there in Exodus chapter 15. You can read it later on your own. But it's a song of victory, a song declaring the power of God and his ability to help. Testimony declaring his faithfulness and his promise to to deliver and help his people in a song of hope and thanksgiving for what God has done. 
And here it tells us that these that have escaped, that have gained victory over the opposition of Antichrist and of his kingdom, those that didn't love their lives unto death and were willing to be martyred because of their hope and salvation, that they will stand and they will sing the song of Moses. And it also tells us that they'll sing the song of the Lamb. Now, there's nowhere in Scripture where there's recorded where it says that this is the song of the Lamb, and I can point you to it. But in Psalm chapter 22, which hopefully you know by now, it's that psalm that points directly at the crucifixion of Christ. It begins with those words that Jesus uttered, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then it goes through and it gives a very detailed and explicit description of what it would be like to be hanging there upon that cross. And what was going on mentally and physically, the anguish that he was feeling as he was there in that place of suffering. But then in verse 22, at the end, he says that I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Ye that fear the Lord, praise him. All ye the seed of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. All ye the seed of Israel. For he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither hath he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard. My praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek him. Your heart shall live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor among the nations, and they that be fat upon earth shall eat and worship. All they that go down to the dust shall bow before him, and none can keep alive his own soul. Sounds good to me. The song of the Lamb, the, the, the victorious one. Even as Jesus cried from the cross, it is finished. And it's the song of us who gain the victory through Jesus Christ. We face the opposition that we have in our own lives. And on the other side of it, as he gives us the victory, we sing out praise and say, he is the one that helps the afflicted that call upon him, that trust in him. And these here, they sing the song of Moses, the song of deliverance, and the song of the Lamb, the song of help and forgiveness. And it says that they say, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Now, he mentions two things, or they mention two things here in their song. They mention the great and marvelous works of God and the just and true ways of God, his works and his ways. And those two things always dovetail together all the way throughout Scripture. The works of God and the ways of God. The works of God speak of what He does, and the ways of God speak of His motivation or what drives Him to do what He does. Psalm 103, verse 7, it says that He made known His ways unto Moses and His acts or His works unto the children of Israel. In Psalm 145, verse 17, it says that the Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. And even Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, verse 37, talking about how God reached him, he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways 
judgment. The works and the ways of God always going together in Scripture. The works being what He does, the ways being why He does it. And it's interesting to me that here they declare the might and the marvel behind the works of God. Why? Because what were the works of God that they saw? They were all judgment, catastrophe, and death. That, now, that is great and marvelous, but it isn't the kind of thing that you picture people in heaven extolling and praising. But notice when it talks about his ways, coupled with the works, what they say. They say, just and true are your ways. Or, righteous and true are your ways. That is, these who went through the tribulation, that experienced the calamity and catastrophe that lost their heads because of, you know, their rejection of Antichrist and had to endure that death and that suffering, that as they stand before God and they recognize His ways, their testimony, having gone through the the weight, the severity of the tribulation, they declare, just and true are your ways. And it's interesting that four or five times as we go through the book of Revelation, we will hear those words ascribed to God in heaven. Righteous and true are your ways. Just and true are your ways. Even the very angels in the next chapter that are pouring out the vials of judgment upon the planet, they say as they do it, righteous and true are your ways. When you judge, O God, it is righteous and true. Now, it's interesting to me that it's always heaven's perspective that's using that phrase. Because oftentimes, from an earthly perspective, it doesn't seem that way, does it? When you see bad things happening to good people, when you see a child suffering unnecessarily, experiencing pain that even an adult wouldn't handle well, when you see the tornadoes ravage through a village in the Midwest of people, When you see a waterway opened up and millions of acres of farmland instantly flooded and ruined and people's lives literally swept away. I mean, we watch it on CNN and it's one thing, but if you're that person experiencing it, it's so hard to fall on your knees and say, righteous and true? Why? But it's a comfort to me that from heaven's perspective, even the very people that experience the calamity of the tribulation look and they say, just and true are your ways. That what is happening on planet earth is perfectly fair. It's perfectly righteous. There's no injustice. Now listen, in heaven there will be no lie. Because I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, who in the presence of God is going to say, that was shady, Lord. You know, you shouldn't have done that. You know, everybody's going to say, but no. The Bible says that all his works are done in truth, which means that there will be no lie in heaven. There will be no one that who in fear says something that they don't really mean in insincerity. But they say just and true because they recognize, they see what on earth they could not see. And they declare righteous and true are your ways. Great and marvelous are your works. For who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. And after that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. 
And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen, and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God, who liveth forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. It's interesting to me that the moment that Jesus was crucified, at the moment that he gave up the ghost, that he physically died, Matthew chapter 27, verses 50 and 51, it says that Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, he yielded up the ghost, and behold, the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks did rent, or did tear. In Old Testament worship, whether it was in the tabernacle during the days of Moses, that portable tent of skins that they would carry with them from place to place, or whether it was the temple that was first erected by Solomon and then later rebuilt after the captivity, whether it was the tabernacle or the temple, There were three sections where the people would gather, where worship would take place, where ministry was fulfilled. The first was the outer court. And anybody was welcome in the outer court. That was the place kind of a fellowship or or, or a meeting, the place where, you know, maybe teaching would happen. And in the outer court, it was kind of the generic meeting or gathering place. But then there was what was called the holy place or the inner courts. And the inner court or the holy place was was something that was populated and used by the priests. You had to be a Levite to go in there. And it was there that the sacrifices would be offered, where the incense would be, you know, burned, that various things would happen in there. But you had to be a priest. It was a place of deeper intensity, of greater ministry. But then there was the third section. It was called the most holy place or the holiest of all, the holy of holies. And the holy of holies was separated from the inner courts by an 18 inch thick veil that was 50 feet high. And it took several men to even hang it in its place when it was put there. So great and you know, wide and thick was this, this veil, this curtain that was there in the temple. And yet it tells us that at the time that Jesus yielded up the ghost, it says that the veil in the temple, 18 inches thick, was torn in two from top to bottom. Interesting. The the symbolism behind this veil, behind this curtain that was put, that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, the purpose of it was to speak clearly to the people that access to God was not open. That you could not just be a common personer and come into the throne room of God, the place where he himself dwelt, the tabernacle, I mean the ark of the covenant with the mercy seat, speaking of his throne. You couldn't just come in there. The only person that could go into the holy of holies was the high priest. There was only one high priest at a time. He would serve out his lifetime and then he would die and it had to be a direct descendant of Aaron who would then be you know, put in his place. And the amount of purification and the process of entry was intense. And if the high priest had any unconfessed sin or any blemish on his soul, when he would go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement once a year, he would drop dead instantly. 
That's why there was bells and pomegranates on the border of their garments, because if the bells stopped ringing, they knew they had a problem. They would tie a rope around the leg of the high priest in case he dropped dead in there. They would be able to pull him out because anybody else who went in to try to get him, they would die too, you know. The holiness of God. The separation that exists between a holy God and a sinful man clearly seen in the thickness of this veil. Anything that's defiled will perish in his presence. It was this veil that was torn when Jesus died. And the symbolism behind the tearing or the renting of the veil is, first of all, that it was torn from top to bottom. Why? Because it happened from heaven to earth. The way was opened into the presence of God, and it wasn't because of man, but it was because of God. Second of all, the way in was revealed. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And it was through the blood and the sacrifice of Christ that the way into the presence of God was open. And at the time that he gave up the ghost and that his blood was shed and he paid the price for sin, now access is open. We can come into the presence of God by the blood and the power of Jesus Christ. And it was a symbol that sin has been cleansed through the person and the work of our great high priest of Jesus Christ. But for those who refuse that gift, for those who don't come to Christ in that way, to those that go through the tribulation time and are martyred in that time then, their sin must be paid for prior to their entering into the temple. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says that the wages of sin is death. And the wages, you know, uh, Hebrews 9.22, it says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Thus, though we've been granted access to God through the blood of Christ, the temple in heaven will not be opened until the price for sin is completely paid, even by them that will pay for it in their own blood. Now, our sin, thank God has been paid for by the blood of Christ. We've been placed in Him. He absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf. But those during the tribulation that will pay for it, they will pay for it in their own blood. And the atonement for sin will be completed in these last seven plagues. As we close, this chapter is a chapter of wrath, a chapter of victory, and a chapter of grace. I believe that probably, you're here on a Wednesday night, the majority of you are probably saved. Why would you come to church on a Wednesday night unless either you're really scared or you're really saved? But if there's any that are not, listen carefully. Sinful man cannot approach a holy God. The only way to pay for sin is in blood. Hebrews 9.22, it says that, Uh, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. But the good news is that Jesus paid the price for all sin by shedding his blood upon the cross. The righteous was killed in place of the guilty, and now he offers to any that will receive, any that will accept, free salvation by faith in his blood, by professing his name. But if you refuse that, if you deny, then you will pay for your sin in your own blood. And you will taste and experience the wrath of God, even as we saw in the last chapter, and as we're preparing to see in the next. 
To the Christian, it's a chapter of victory. Why? We're in a war. Satan, the Bible says, he is the prince of this world. All of its systems are designed to distract and to defeat us. And the war requires that we fight, but we fight from the place of victory. The Bible says that we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And therefore, we are able to fight. We're able to endure. We're able to conquer whatever it is that that thing that you struggle with. Whatever it is, that insurmountable obstacle that seems to always be looming over you, that promises it's going to be the defeat of you. The Bible says that you can plunge forward into that battle in the name of Jesus Christ and that you will be more than a conqueror through him because you are fighting from the place of victory. And it's through him that we have it. And it's a chapter of grace because for you and for I, the veil is open. Did you know that you and I, that we have access to God? That we don't have to come through the priesthood like they did in the Old Testament. It isn't just once a year that we can go and receive counsel and help and grace in our time of need. But we have open access 24-7 to come into the presence of God. The Bible says boldly. As sons and daughters. Now, when do my kids have to make a sacrifice and an atonement before they come into my presence? Oftentimes they try. They'll say, I love you, Dad. You know what that is, right? That's an offering. And why? Because they want something, right? But did you know that we don't bring an offering as we come to our Father? Jesus said, your Father himself loves you. Therefore, ask that you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened unto you. The Bible says that he is able to comfort us in all of our tribulation. The Bible says that we can cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. And that we can approach boldly into the throne of grace and obtain help in our time of need because of the provision of Christ. I think that is the least tapped resource in the church of Jesus Christ today. But yet the veil is open. We have access. What a privilege. Father, we just thank you tonight for the word of God. We thank you for the testimony, for the truth. We thank you for the hope, for the promise. And we even thank you for the battle. Lord, it won't be until heaven that we can really understand what things are being worked out in our lives. The Christ-likeness that it's causing us to obtain, to experience. The grace and the power that goes before us as we wrestle, not against flesh and blood, but against those principalities, those powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. And I pray for any here tonight, Father, that are in that battle and that are ready to lay down and just accept defeat. Nothing on the left, nothing on the right, the Red Sea behind them and the army of Pharaoh closing in. I pray, Lord, that you would open up the sea. That they would see the salvation of God. That they would sing the song of Moses and of the Lamb, not on the other side of the sea, but on this side. That you would give us faith that we would be clothed upon with the full armor of God. 
the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, our feet prepared with the gospel of peace, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, a powerful weapon. I pray tonight, Lord, we'd be renewed in our resolve. For any discouraged, Lord, I pray that even now you would pour out your Spirit. That you would fill your people afresh with your Spirit. That you'd cause them to look up. That you would soften the hardened heart. That you would bend and break the proud and stiff knee. I pray for those that have been prayerless, that have drawn back, that have pulled away, that, Lord, you would remind them again of your goodness. That you would give them the glimpse of the heavenly perspective that they would be able to say, just and true are your ways. As messed up as it might seem from this earthly perspective, that you would fill them with faith. That you'd renew their hope. That you'd give them new life. Pray for those that are battling, struggling with sin. Lord, you promised to give us the victory. You said that we would be more than conquerors through him that loved us. So please, Lord, right now, even now, we ask that you would loose the bands of wickedness. That you would break the chains of the enemy. That you would redeem lives from that miry clay that you'd put a new song in the heart. And I pray, Lord, for any that are here that don't know you personally, that are standing on the outside, afraid of the scoffers and what the world will say if they give their life to you. I pray that even now your spirit would knock upon the door of their heart so loud and clear and that you would move them to let you in they might taste and see that you're gracious. That it isn't the fear of judgment of a God of wrath, but it's the love and grace of him that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. I pray, Lord, that as we stand and sing this last song, that you would hear this prayer offered in Jesus' name you would move in the lives of your people. We give you glory. We give you honor and praise. Move through this place. Move in our hearts, we ask. Let's all stand together.